Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's around the 20th of November 1940 in Sydney and 22-year-old Len Fuller, newly promoted to RAAF flight sergeant, but world famous for his incredible pickaback landing of two Avro Anson aeroplanes, is facing another one of those sweat-on-your-brow, do-or-die moments. Len has reason to believe he can pull this off, Yet, like any man in this position, he can't be 100% sure. He's flying into uncharted territory. For this mission, Len carries a small but precious payload. This one, he's designed himself. A thin gold band with a solitary diamond that's set in tiny Air Force wings of platinum. The target area? Ring finger of one Miss Thelma Cockrell. Len's girlfriend is an attractive brunette who's just turned 19. Now. He pops the question. She says, yes. Len slips the ring on her finger. But the happy couple won't be tying the knot for some time yet. That's because Len Fuller is soon to embark. A few months from now, he'll be one of those men who was spoken of in the newspapers as being somewhere in England or somewhere in the Middle East. Len will be flying combat missions against the Germans and or the Italians. Put simply, he has a 50-50 chance of being killed. But with Thelma waiting for him at home, Len has every reason to do everything in his power to make sure he's one of the lucky ones. I'm Michael Adams, this is Forgotten Australia, and you're listening to RAAF hero Len Fuller, Part 3, Blood Moon and the Setting of the Sun. Thelma Cockrell was born in Karachi during the time her father was serving there in the Indian Army. The family then lived in England before relocating to Australia. Electoral rolls at Ancestry.com.au show that the Cockrells lived in Western Sydney during the 1930s, before moving to Bondi around the end of the decade. Thelma was in the eastern suburbs and in Len's orbit. Now he and she were God and everything else willing, to one day be man and wife. Despite the RAAF's best efforts to keep Len out of the spotlight, his engagement to Thelma made all the Sydney newspapers. The Sun reported that the youngsters seemed well-matched. Thelma shared Len's love of sports, being a keen swimmer, golfer, equestrian and tennis player. She was a good patriotic lass too, doing her bit for the war effort by knitting warm clothing for our Air Force boys. The Daily Telegraph photographed Len and Thelma together in early December at the inaugural dinner held to honour the foundation members of the Rue Club. Len's comrades, Ian Sinclair, Jack Hewson and Hugh Fraser had all bailed out over Brocklesby using Dominion parachutes. 
the fourth member of this exclusive club, pilot Lionel Webber, seemingly wasn't able to be present. But Len was, and he was a guest of honour. After all, it was his cool-headed heroism that had kept the two Aggies aloft long enough for his mates to make their escape. In a photo taken mid-toast to Len, Thelma stood with a drink in her hand as she gazed down with affectionate amusement at her famous fiancé. Thelma had to hope that his luck and skill would prevail for however long he was off at the war. Len embarked on a ship on the 10th of December 1940. While his match to Thelma had been celebrated in the newspapers, this dispatch received no newspaper fanfare. Such specific military movements were kept secret. A syndicated column called RAAF Notes, The Enemy Listens, was printed in the papers at this time to remind Air Force personnel and the general public that loose lips sink ships. But too many people were still flapping their gums. Around the time Len left, a column said, quote, a young Air Force chappie blithely informed me that he would be in a certain country by a certain date. He named the boat he was sailing on and the date and port of embarkation. Had I been an enemy alien, quite possibly another ship would have fallen victim to the raiders. Len's certain country was England. His certain date? Well, that would depend on whether his transport was picked off by a Nazi U-boat. Len was still in transit when he was finally officially recognised for the Mid-Air Miracle. The Air Board on the 10th of January 1941 issued a letter that was sent to the RAF in Middlesex. It's found in Len's National Archives of Australia RAAF file and it reads, quote, I have to advise that the Air Board has very carefully considered all aspects of this accident and consider that number AUS 402052-LAC-Fuller-LG showed commendable presence of mind, courage and determination in landing the locked Ansons without serious damage to the aircraft under difficult conditions. His action received the commendation of the Air Board and I am to request that he may be informed accordingly and that his personal record may be duly notated. It was signed M.C. Langslow, Secretary of the Air Board. So that was it. He hadn't been at fault and he'd acted heroically. But while the RAAF had put it out that he was to be punished for speaking to the press, it didn't see fit to issue a press communique to say that Len Fuller had been officially commended. In recent Forgotten Australia episodes, we've looked at strange double and even triple coincidences. A lot of random stars had had to align for Len Fuller to pull off the mid-air miracle. And even with his skill level, experts at the time hadn't said it was a million or even a billion to one shot. They'd simply said it was impossible. But here's the start of a story that appeared in Canada's Daily Sun-Times on the 1st of February 1941, while Len was still in transit to England. Quote, The Royal Canadian Air Force, with many heroic acts to its credit, had another chapter of pilot coolness under emergency in its book of deeds today. In a freak flying accident, believed the first of its kind in Canada, two Avro Anson bombers collided and locked in mid-air, one above the other, over the McLeod airfield yesterday. They were landed safely. These Aggies had also been piloted by young Empire Air Scheme trainees. The Royal Canadian Air Force didn't issue much in the way of details, other to say, quote, the machines landed interlocked and the occupants of the planes were uninjured. A senior officer did say the pilots of both aircraft had saved themselves and the planes with their excellent presence of mind. When Sydney's The Sun ran the story a month later, it was with a photo that showed the Canadian planes. They hadn't been nearly as centred as Lens, nor had they been anywhere near as high. If they had been, the men likely wouldn't have survived. Still, it was impressive. Quote, the planes were gliding into landings when, about 50 feet above the ground, they locked together. The pilot of the upper plane stopped his engines and the pilot of the lower craft brought both down to a safe landing. What were the chances of two Avro Ansons being piloted by trainees, colliding in mid-air, becoming fused and being landed with no fatalities? Twice. I'm going to leave that to the mathemagicians and the cosmologists. Len Fuller disembarked in England on the 8th of February 1941. 
Now safely on the other side of the world, newspapers reported the arrival of the first Australian pilots produced by the Empire Air Scheme. Australia's best were welcomed by Viscount Cranbourne, Dominion Secretary and other luminaries, including the Australian High Commissioner, former Prime Minister Stanley Bruce. The only Australian pilot name-checked in every article? Len Fuller. The RAAF in England didn't have the same aversion to publicity that its counterparts did at home. Looking smart in his uniform, Len was even photographed chatting with Mr Bruce. It was like his dad nearly 20 years earlier, when Bill Fuller had been honoured by Dr Earl Page, who back then had been Prime Minister Bruce's deputy. When this picture of Len and Mr Bruce appeared in the Sunday Times in Western Australia, it was beneath the headline, Talk of New Exploits? Len's famous landing was, of course, recalled in that article. It always would be, whenever he was mentioned. But the mid-air miracle was in the past. The future was the fight for the free world, and there would be plenty of opportunity for those new exploits. The Dominion Secretary told Len and the other men how vital they were, as warriors, but also as symbols of an undaunted Commonwealth. Quote, the Empire Air Training Scheme is not only one of the most impressive examples of imperial cooperation, but is also one of the most important. Although it is still not certain that air power alone will win, it is certain that it must play a vital part. That was proved at Dunkirk, in the Battle of Britain and in Libya. The Australians' arrival, and that of new Canadian pilots, the Viscount said had to be giving Jerry a case of the heebie-jeebies. Or... As he put it a little more eloquently, quote, I do not imagine that anything is more exasperating or more disconcerting to the enemy than to see the increasing and inexorable way the world's finest pilots are crossing the Atlantic to act not only for the defence of Britain, but to continue to strike an unceasingly heavy blow at Germany. The Viscount concluded with this stirring sentiment. You have come at the right moment. The spring offensive is nearly upon us. I am sure you would not wish to miss that. You are joining a noble company. I am sure you will add to its luster and fame. For all those fancy fighting words, Len Fuller wasn't barreling straight into a bomber bound for Berlin. The Australian Empire Air Scheme men were now split up. Len was off to RAF's number 15 operational training unit, which was part of number 6 group RAF Bomber Command at RAF Harwell. There, Len would learn to fly Vickers Wellington bombers at night. The twin-engine Wellingtons were crewed by six men. They had forward, underside and rear turret guns and could carry 4,500 pounds of bombs, 1,500 miles, at 240 miles an hour and reach a ceiling of 18,000 feet. As in Australia, training remained extremely dangerous. The virtual war memorial puts it succinctly, quote, Loss rates in training were high due to inexperience, crowded airspace, often poor weather, and even enemy aircraft operating over the United Kingdom. Those who survived training and then survived combat were still not out of the woods. Quote, Experienced pilots and aircrew were posted back to operational training units to train and mentor new crews. Things were no less risky for them. Len got through his Wellington training and was transferred to the RAF's Middle East Pool in late April. At the start of May 1941, Len joined the No. 3 Squadron at Shalufa in Egypt. This was about 80 miles west of Cairo on the Suez Canal. The 37 Squadron, which had flown operational missions since the very first day of the war, was now carrying out nighttime bombing raids on Mediterranean targets. The first six months of 1941 had been triumph followed by tragedy for Allied forces in Libya, which, under Italian colonial rule, was an Axis power. First, the Allies, including the men of the 6th Australian Division, had, in January and February, captured Bardia, Tobruk and Benghazi. But the Axis counterattack under General Erwin Rommel of the German Africa Corps had seen terrible reversals. Bardia and Benghazi had been lost, and the Australians were still besieged at Tobruk. 
from Shalufa, 37 Squadron was doing what it could against the Germans and Italians. War movies naturally edit Bomber Command crew experiences down to present us with a quick succession of thrills and terrors. You know the drill, bombs away and direct hits, the crisscross of searchlights, the skies filled with anti-aircraft flak and swarming fighter attacks. But the reality was more about surviving the dangerous grind. Hoping your number wasn't up on today's mission, and then throwing that dice again tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow. Raids usually didn't produce spectacular results. At this time, an RAF study showed that most bombs missed their European targets by miles. Even if you did do better than that, it was tough to know what you'd hit from 8,000 feet up, at night, perhaps under enemy attack and through clouds and smoke. Individual missions weren't usually reported in the newspapers in much detail, and specific squadron numbers and other sensitive information was not included. Ordinarily, 37 Squadron's missions weren't of any singular military significance. The drop, drop, drop of their bombs was about the drip, drip, drip effect that gradually eroded the enemy's capabilities. When Len wrote home, he would have alluded only in general terms to what he was doing. But we can see the details of his combat flights in the RAF's records for 37 Squadron that are held in the UK's National Archives. These operational logs and summaries record the part that every Wellington and its crew played in each mission. On the night of the 2nd of June 1941, 13 months after Len was called up in Australia, he flew into combat. He was the second pilot to a Captain Sergeant Robinson in one of two Wellingtons detailed to attack harbour installations at Benghazi. They took off at 10pm and came over the target at between 8 and 9,000 feet. Up came some AA fire, but there were no searchlights. Both Wellingtons sent down a stick of bombs that fell across the town. Those from Lens Plane fell on the base of the Cathedral and Italia Moles. In the operations record, the effect was noted as a fire was caused. Both Wellingtons touched down safely at Shalufa around dawn. Information made public about this raid was succinct. For instance, the Evening Dispatch in England on the 4th of June reported, quote, Another RAF raid on the Libyan port of Benghazi is reported in today's Italian communique. The communique says the raid took place on the night 2nd-3rd June, but gives no details as to the extent of the damage caused. A couple of nights later, Len was Captain Sergeant Robinson's second pilot again in a bombing raid on an airfield. A few nights after that, it was another attack on the docks at Benghazi, where Len's plane's stick of bombs caused a fire. From that height at night, causing observable fires was a good result. The Daily Mirror in Sydney on the 9th of June carried a cable report from Cairo. Quote, Monday, main Axis centres in Libya were given a terrific hammering by RAF pre-dawn patrols yesterday, and the lurid glow from Benghazi's military works and harbour could be seen 50 miles away by returning bombers. A second wave of bombers which attacked Benghazi was able to drop its bombs into the hearts of huge fires started by the first wave. Derna, which was another Libyan port, was battered and left ablaze, with a number of enemy planes destroyed on the ground. All RAF planes returned safely from the Libya operations. Now that was a good night's work. But a lot of the 37 Squadron reports describe sorties in which pilots couldn't find the targets due to bad weather or defensive smokescreens. They'd drop bombs with no real idea of whether they were hitting anything. More dangerously, sometimes, due to weather or mechanical issues, planes would have to return to base fully laden with bombs. Landing a Wellington packed with high explosives in the desert at night wasn't anyone's idea of fun. Generally speaking, on these missions at this time, there wasn't a lot of heavy flak, but planes did get coned, which was the term for being caught, in searchlights, and they did take fire and suffer damage. There would be entries in the operations report that noted that this or that captain had not returned to base. Of course, what that meant was that he and his five crew had gone down. 
The best case scenario for 37 squadron men who didn't return was that they had bailed out safely over Allied controlled Egypt. Next best scenario, they were POW. Usually if men weren't located immediately, they'd be recorded as missing. Unless notified they were POWs, after a few months they'd be presumed dead. Unfortunately, it was most often the worst case scenario. Len Fuller flew missions irregularly at first. It seems he was being warmed up to take control of his own Wellington. RAF crew had to do a tour of 30 operational flights, not exceeding 200 flying hours, over a period of up to a year. Survive that and Len would be returned to England for a minimum of six months, where he'd risk his life as an instructor training the next batch of inexperienced blokes like he'd been so recently. This cycle of danger is reminiscent of Catch-22, Joseph Heller's book about a Mediterranean bomber crewman cracking up under the pressure of fulfilling the required number of missions. One of the memorable supporting character names in that satire is a man named Major Major Major, who has the rank of Major, making him Major 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 Major. Funnily enough, at Shalufa at this time, there was an RAF man named Sergeant, whose rank was Sergeant, but who was a pilot, making him Captain Sergeant Sergeant. He and Len Fuller would soon be flying missions together. While Len was getting up to speed in the Middle East, his old Brocklesby buddy Ian Sinclair was in the thick of it over Germany. Though the RAAF in Australia had frowned on individuals telling tales of daring do, the RAF and RAAF in England seemed more relaxed about this. Ian Sinclair was allowed to speak to a reporter from Sydney's The Sun in London in July 1941, or at least he wasn't punished for doing so. The story he told was of a recent and rather eccentric action against the enemy. Ian had been in charge of a Wellington crew of five and they'd been carrying a few thousand pounds of bombs when they'd hit wild weather. He told the reporter, Night raiding is just routine stuff. We leave the thrills to the fighters. But this week, when taking presents to Hamburg, we ran into the worst electric storm in the North Sea I have ever seen. The rear gunner thought his guns were on fire as blue sparks leapt from the metal propeller, which resembled a giant blue halo. Great sheets of yellow flame seemed to burst clean on top of us. Surviving the storm, which had seen their engines freeze up, necessitating Ian taking the Wellington into a steep dive, they reached Hamburg and were lit up by searchlights. But Ian and his mates had a cunning and very Aussie countermeasure all prepared. Empty beer bottles that they'd collected from the mess. Coordinating via their phone connections in the plane, the wise-cracking crew simultaneously dropped this glass payload. Down the empties whistled. Ian Sinclair explained, A beer bottle makes a noise equal to three bombs and always makes Jerry douse a few searchlights. It worked this night too. Though the anti-aircraft fire continued, the ACAC wasn't as accurate. Still, you could get unlucky. Plucky Ian Sinclair told the Sun, Of course, we didn't like the shell bursts, but they add zest to the game. We dropped a few thousand pounds of headache powder and then turned for home. This sort of stirring story, gallant and nonchalant, was the stuff that boosted morale, kept the recruits enlisting, kept the home fires burning. Keeping spirits and the supply of men high was vital, because Bomber Command was suffering huge losses. As we heard in Part 1, some 125,000 aircrew would serve during World War II. Numbers vary, but around 55,500 men died in operations. Another 8,000 were killed in training or non-operational flights. Then, there were tens of thousands wounded or taken prisoner. Len Fuller had a 1 in 2 chance of being shot down and killed or dying in an accident. He had a 1 in 4 chance of being wounded or becoming a POW. He had a 1 in 4 chance of surviving the war unscathed. The average age of Bomber Command men who died in combat was 23. Len Fuller turned 23 on the 9th of August 1941. Death was never far away, even when he wasn't up in the air. Two days after his birthday, 
the 11th of August at 4.20am with Wellingtons just returned from a raid on Suez, an enemy aircraft dropped four 250-pound bombs on the Shalufa camp. They scored a direct hit on a building, killing an officer and badly wounding a sergeant. Eleven days later, a Wellington took off at 10.50pm for a cross-country flight. It crashed soon after takeoff. All six crew members were killed. During this period, Captain Sergeant Sergeant had charge of a Wellington with Len Fuller as his second pilot. On one raid on the Libyan port of Derna, they silenced an anti-aircraft battery with a stick of bombs. Their second stick rained down on an airfield. On another operation on Greece's Corinth Canal, which the Germans and Italians used for transporting men and supplies, their Wellington made such an excellent approach it was presumed their bombs had landed in the target area, but there was no visual confirmation of the damage done. Captain Sergeant Sergeant and Sergeant Fuller raided the Eleusius airfield, bombing two hangars that were already ablaze, and they also had less successful return engagements at Derna and Benghazi. Successful or not, they got back safely. Others did not. In the records of the night of the 5th and 6th of September 1941, we simply read, Flight Officer Wheeler failed to return from this operation. That meant with him went Flight Officers Parsons and Peterson and Sergeant Hyatt and Sergeant Leach. On the night of the 29th of September, one year to the day since the pickerback landing, Len Fuller had the command of a Wellington as captain. The target was Benghazi shipping. The operations report read, He dropped his bombs across the shipping and the central mole, but apart from the bomb bursts, no other results were observed. A couple of weeks later, Len was second to a Captain Sergeant Gilbert on another hit on Benghazi. They dropped their first stick on the quayside, but cloud cover obscured the result. Their second attack scored a hit on the Cathedral Mole, though no fires resulted. All in all, a bit of a washout. They returned to base, but coming in to land at 6.20, the Wellington starboard undercarriage collapsed when they hit the airfield. This was the sort of heart-in-mouth moment where Wellington crews died. This time, no one was hurt. Len Fuller captained regular raids through October, November and December. He scored some good hits against Benghazi and Derna on several occasions, causing visible fires and explosions. Len flew on Christmas Eve, dropping bombs without appreciable effect on El Aghila, and then a week later on New Year's Eve doing the same against Salamis, unable to see the results of that raid because he was too busy getting out of the enemy searchlights. Len's few raids in January and February were foiled by bad weather with him unable to locate targets, which meant returning to base and going about the tricky business of landing with his bombs. By now, back in Australia, the Roo Club had a dozen members, all of them RAAF men who'd bailed out successfully during emergencies with Dominion parachutes. Foundation Roo Club member Hugh Fraser was making the most of the second chance at life he'd been given over Brocklesby. He was promoted to pilot officer on the 14th of January 1942 and posted to 206 Squadron at Aldergrove in Ireland. This was in County Antrim. In a weird way, it was like a homecoming for Hugh because his people hailed from there. The 206 Squadron's crews were flying Hudsons on anti-submarine patrols, attacking U-boats where they saw them. RAF records show that on the 26th of January, Australia Day, Hugh Fraser piloted one of nine Hudsons sent out on one of these U-boat sweeps. He took off at 10 past 11 in the morning and returned at 10 to 6 in the evening, having made no enemy sightings. Just one of the Hudson pilots that day got to have a go at a Nazi sub, though with no apparent result. Like Len Fuller flying Wellingtons out of Shalufa for 37 Squadron, most missions flown by the 206 didn't end up with pilots covering themselves in glory. It was a bit of a grind. Hugh Fraser flew on unsuccessful U-boat hunts for the next five days. 
The 206's operation records book for February 1942 begins with the entry 1st to 3rd, 2nd, 42. No operational flying. But there was a flight on the first day of February. Not operational, but training. Hugh Fraser had been flying a Hudson in an aerodrome defence exercise. The RAF Court of Inquiry would say that he and other pilots had been ordered to follow their flight leader in an echelon starboard formation. But, according to the inquiry, Hugh Fraser flew too low or dived too close to the ground. Either way, his Hudson's starboard wing hit trees. The plane flipped and landed not on its belly, but on its back, and burst into flames. Hugh Fraser died instantaneously, as did his observer, RAF Sergeant A.D. Campbell, and his gunners, RAF Sergeant P.A. Fry and RAF Sergeant G.T. Kettle. There were no survivors. Four more men towards the 8,000 who die in RAF Bomber Command non-operational flights during the war. Hugh Fraser was 28. He was buried in a local Catholic church cemetery. Three days later, on the other side of the world, at her home in Camberwell in Melbourne, Hugh's widowed mother got the dreaded knock on the door. Her son was dead. That one of the four men from the Midair Miracle had met his maker was noted by the Australian newspapers. The Herald in Melbourne ran Hugh's photo with the headline, Rue Club Flyer Lost in Atlantic Battle. Reports of Hugh's death also told readers that his poor mother's war worries were far from over. See, he had twin 22-year-old brothers, Charles and Harris, and they'd followed their famous older sibling into the Empire Air Training Scheme and were now completing their advanced flying courses in Rhodesia. Soon, they'd be fighting in the skies somewhere. Just over a year later, in the second week of March 1943, Mrs Fraser would get that knock again. Her son, Sergeant Pilot Harris Fraser, who'd become a fighter pilot with the number one squadron protecting the southeast of England, had died in air operations over Kent. On the 6th of March, after a day of bad weather, it had cleared enough for Harris and another pilot to take their planes up on an evening patrol. They were flying in thick cloud when they collided in mid-air. There was no miracle landing, no successful parachute jump. The wreckage of the planes was found five miles apart. In both cases, debris was strewn over hundreds of yards of countryside. As the number one squadron's record of operations noted, it is some consolation to know that both boys died instantaneously. Mrs. Harris's other pilot son, Charles, would survive the war, as would a fourth brother who'd signed up for the AIF. When Hugh Fraser died, some headlines, like the Coral of Free Presses, Brocklesby Pickerback Pilot Killed in Action, might have given the wrong initial impression that it had been Len Fuller whose number had come up. But Len, out of the spotlight for a while now, was about to make headlines again. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Just before we continue, I'm delighted to announce that the next Forgotten Australia Book Club will celebrate 10 years of Gert. Of course, I'm talking about author David Hunt's trilogy of hilarious best-selling books about Australian history. They're called Gert, True Gert, and Gert Nation. All three Gerts are available wherever good books are sold, and in all formats, paperback, ebook, and audio. So, if you haven't already, give the Gerts a read or listen, and send your questions through for David Hunt, who'll be joining me for a chat about all things Gertie. If you want to be old school, you can email your questions to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But if you want to get down with the new tech and have more fun, take a minute to record a question with your phone or computer via speakpipe.com forward slash ForgottenAustralia. It sounds very cyber, but SpeakPipe is dead easy to use. You say your piece, click a button, and the audio file comes straight to me. 
and then I can play your question for David during the book club episode. Those email and speak pipe addresses are in your show notes. Get your questions in by the 15th of November if you want to be part of the episode. Okay, on with Len Fuller's story. By the start of March, a detachment of crew and Wellingtons had been sent from Shalufa to the RAF base at Luka in Malta. Malta had been fought over bitterly during the past two years. The tide of the war was turning now against the Allies, who were under increasing Luftwaffe attack. These attacks would soon become nearly non-stop as Hitler and Mussolini softened Malta up for invasion. The 37 Squadron Detachment at Luka would fly missions against Axis targets in the Mediterranean. On the night of the 2nd of March 1942, the weather was clear and the moon was full. Later on, starting at 11.30pm, there was to be a total lunar eclipse, a blood moon. Under this eerie light, Len Fuller would pilot one of 10 Wellingtons in a raid on shipping at Palermo. That was if Len and his mates could get into the air. Early in the evening, a large formation of Luftwaffe, Junkers 88s and Messerschmitt 109s swept in to attack Luca. Bombs blew craters in the aerodrome and runways. One of the squadron's planes copped it and was reduced to a burning wreck. Thankfully, there'd been no crew in the plane. Damage to Luca Base didn't stop that night's mission. The Wellington started taking off at 10.03, the first one up piloted by squadron leader Tompkins. Len's plane was up next at 10 past 10. The Wellington started coming in over Palermo, which was partly obscured by smoke shortly before the eclipse began. Searchlights swept, but they couldn't find the planes. Nevertheless, the flak was intense, shell bursts all around. Squadron leader Tompkins and Sergeant Fuller attacked first, estimating the position of shipping. They bombed simultaneously and hit a vessel at the southern end of the northern mole and set it ablaze. This was a terrific inferno. Other Wellington pilots came in, dropping their bombs, some missing, others hitting. One stick caused an explosion and an oil or petrol fire that was visible 40 miles away. Another pilot aimed his bombs at this fire and at the burning ship. The 10 Wellingtons had done pretty well. Upon coming back to base, which had been more or less under constant Luftwaffe attack, squadron leader Tompkins overshot the aerodrome. Luckily, no one was injured. Len landed at quarter past one. Despite continued attacks on the airfield, he ordered his Wellington refueled and rearmed. Len, along with five other pilots, took off again at 2.25am. Above Len now was a total lunar eclipse. Under this blood moon, he flew back to Palermo. Down below, fires were raging. Flight officer Nesbitt dropped his bombs on these and started another blaze. Then Len let his payload go across the northern end of the harbour. The official squadron summary reads, quote, As a result, a white fire started in the shipbuilding yards. Also, an orange fire with much smoke at the northwest corner of the harbour. Other pilots came in and bombed existing fires. Len was out of bombs, but his Wellington still had its machine guns. So, at great risk, he circled over the harbour. The presence of his Wellington kept fire crews away from the blazing ships. These fires were still going strong when Len turned around for base at 4am. He landed at 5 o'clock. 13 minutes later, the full moon slipped completely free of the Earth's shadow. The lunar eclipse was over. The RAF didn't know at first quite how successful this raid had been but it proved that they'd sunk a 6,000-ton German freighter and badly damaged a 5,400-ton Italian steamer. But it was another Italian ship, the Kuma, laden with ammunition and fuel that was burning out of control thanks in part to Len. His action in ensuring that it continued to burn might have been worth half a dozen more raids. 
on the 4th of March, still ablaze, the Kuma would explode. The massive blast sank the ship and sank another of the bomb ships nearby. The explosion also damaged dozens more vessels, including a handful of warships and freighters, along with port facilities and city buildings. The raid had been a triumph. But the RAF at Luka was also copying it. On the morning of the 3rd, Len had only been back from Palermo on the ground a few hours when the Luftwaffe swept over Malta with the biggest aerial blitz in months. That night, the air raid alert was given seven times at the base, with the Luftwaffe hammering, further cratering the runway and destroying another Wellington. But what the squadron had achieved at Palermo didn't go unnoticed amid all this chaos. Even before the full story of the Kuma explosion was known, 37 Squadron received a message of congratulations from the RAF Air Vice Marshal with command of Mediterranean operations. And the RAF was singling out two men, and doing so with more than a belated letter of commendation. Squadron Leader Tompkins was to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross. Sergeant Len Fuller was to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal. On the 4th of March 1940, Malta suffered a 20-hour Nazi bombing spree. RAF Luca was hit again and again. The next day was similar, with another Wellington blown up on the ground. The Air Force just couldn't replace them faster than the Nazis were destroying them. At this rate, it wouldn't be long before the surviving flyers of 37 Squadron had nothing to fly. That night, Len and another pilot were detailed on a gardening mission in Tripoli Harbour. Gardening meant laying mines, which were nicknamed vegetables or cucumbers. They flew over the assigned waters, dropped their vegetables, encountered a little flak, and returned safely to base with two other planes that had flown a diversion mission over the city itself, drawing anti-aircraft fire away from the gardeners. On the night of the 8th of March, Len got to sit out another gardening mission against Tripoli Harbour. At half past midnight, Captain Flight Officer Boyd got permission to take off. He opened his throttle and was two-thirds down the runway when he hit another Wellington that had moved into his path by mistake. Both planes caught fire and their mines exploded. Captain Boyd, his second pilot, his observer and his front gunner were all seriously injured and rushed to hospital. The official record reads, quote, Sergeant Herman, the wireless operator, must have been blown to pieces as no trace of his body was ever found. But the rear gunner was blown out of his turret and escaped unhurt. Talk about luck. But there was little luck in the other Wellington. The pilot, Flight Sergeant Kozlowski paid with his life for his error, as did his observer and his wireless operator. This was a human tragedy, but it was also a material loss. The 37 Squadron was down another two precious warbirds. Ten days later, they were done. By the 18th of March, the malted detachment could not continue. A total of 15 Wellingtons had been flown to Luka, 11 had been destroyed, 2 in that accident, and 9 on the ground in Luftwaffe raids. 3 more had been so badly damaged they were write-offs. 37 Squadron had only one plane that could still fly. The detachment was sent back to Shalufa. There, with new Wellingtons from England, they'd again be raiding targets in Libya. Around the time of this move, news of Len's part in the Palermo raid and his Distinguished Flying Medal reached Australia. All the papers reported it and recalled his mid-air miracle. The Border Morning Mail, which had always been most invested in Len's story, reflected, quote, When a man becomes famous overnight by performing some extraordinary feat which captures the public imagination, his principal worry from then on is how to live up to a made-in-a-moment reputation assuming, of course, that he wants to. One wonders whether young Leonard Graham Fuller of the RAAF was imbued with the idea of gaining more world notoriety when he left Australia after making the famous pickaback landing. 
The Border Morning Mail recapped its battle with the RAAF to publish that first famous photo of the pickaback planes in the paddock. The newspaper also reminded readers that the RAAF had wanted to keep Len Fuller out of the limelight. The paper saying that the brass had worried all the publicity might give him a big head. But, the Border Morning Mail said, that hadn't happened. Len had just gotten on with things. Quote, Fuller was quietly whisked overseas to try his genius for flying in a field where aeroplanes have a habit of coming down in pieces. But the world did not forget the boy, and he bobbed up the other day in an operation over Palermo, which earned him the Distinguished Flying Medal. The newspaper was glad he was getting recognised this time. Except, quote, But what is most intriguing to those who cannot fathom the official mind is why Sergeant Fuller has not yet reached commissioned rank. The paper wondered whether this was the RAF or the RAAF's oversight. In any case, quote, It is to be hoped Fuller's superiors in the Middle East will take a more liberal view of his case. Over Benghazi, 37 Squadron Wellingtons were copping splinters that wounded crew, sometimes fatally. Planes, already pummeled by desert conditions, were patched up, put back together, sent into the air, flown by very young men who, despite their stiff upper lips, were under enormous mental, physical, emotional and spiritual pressure. On April 7, a Wellington simply blew up right after takeoff. All six crew were killed. Eleven days later, a Wellington returning from a mission crashed and exploded. All six crew were killed. On the 25th and 26th of April, 37 squadrons remaining serviceable Wellingtons were moved to an Egyptian RAF base designated as LG-09 between El Daba and Fuka. This was where Len Fuller would end his tour in early May 1942. Len had survived his year. He returned to the UK where, from July, he served as an instructor in the number 15 and number 23 operational training units. Len, who'd once taught drivers how to drive in Sydney, was now training young pilots, some from Australia, in how to fly Wellingtons on nighttime bombing missions. Being away from combat wasn't any guarantee of safety. Crashes were common. Len got his commissioned rank, promoted to pilot officer in September 1942, and then to flying officer in March the following year. By June 1943, Len Fuller had 1,268 hours in the air. 100 of those had been in Aggies as captain or second pilot, but he'd done nearly 1,000 day and night hours in Wellingtons. Despite this experience and his recent promotions, an RAF confidential report, which was filed on all officers, rated Len as average or below. Out of 10, he got 5 for zeal and energy in performance of duties, and 5 also for general standard of professional ability. Len scored just a 4 out of 10 for initiative, and the same for ability on present duties, and for personality, force of character, and leadership. Judging by other officer reports, the RAF assessors were hard markers. Ian Sinclair, for instance, scored straight sixes, but still received a glowing assessment from his superior. But Len didn't get a good report in this respect either. Section 13, which was for general remarks of commanding officer or other immediate superior officer, saw his wing commander comment, This officer has completed a tour of operations in the Middle East. For some reason, he was not popular with his brother officers. He was a satisfactory instructor without having been outstanding. Was he disliked by his fellow officers because Leonard stood out from them not once but twice? Was it because he'd come through unscathed, been lucky, when so many others had not? Or had Len developed that big head the RAAF had feared would result from the mid-air miracle publicity? We don't know. The negative assessment might have been the result of something else entirely, or it might have merely been an officer's musings based on a stray comment or two. In any case, Len Fuller was next to follow the path of many Australian pilots who served with the RAF, survived combat and had trained the Brits. He'd return home, 
and he'd now teach the RAAF's new recruits. Len embarked for Australia on the 11th of August 1943, and he disembarked in Sydney a month later. It had been almost three years since he proposed to Thelma Cockrell. Their reunion had to be pretty sweet. They certainly didn't waste any time. Len and Thelma were married on Saturday the 25th of September 1943 at St James Church King Street in Sydney. In another stroke of luck for Len, his two brothers, Gunnar Keith Fuller of the AIF and Sergeant Nigel Fuller of the RAAF, had also been recently returned to Australia. His brothers were able to get leave. Keith was Len's best man. Nigel was his groomsman. The Sydney newspapers ran photos of Len and Thelma, all smiles and glowing at each other as they left the church. Mr and Mrs Pickerback Fuller held their reception at Northbridge Golf Club. Len's parents, who'd been married since 1915, had to be proud as punch. Yet, as far as a model of a long and happy union went, it was pretty hard to beat the example set by Len's maternal grandparents. They'd been married for nearly 60 years. Len and Thelma would have to wait for their honeymoon but perhaps it didn't matter so much when they had a change of scenery to look forward to. Len started as a flying instructor at the number one operational training unit in East Sale, Gippsland in Victoria in mid-October 1943. Thelma went with her young husband. They took a house off the base in Sale Township. This was four miles due west of the RAAF base. An easy bicycle ride in these petrol ration times. Len was instructing men in how to fly the Australian-made Bristol Beaufort twin-engined torpedo bomber. By the end of 1943, he'd done nearly 75 daylight hours in these planes, and he'd also flown three hours at night. How dangerous was the Bristol Beaufort? The short answer? Very. The number one OTU had been moved from Bansdale six months earlier. One dark joke had it, they'd had to move to sail because there was no more room left in the Bansdale Cemetery, given it was filled with the victims of Beaufort crashes. This was an exaggeration, but not much of one. By the time the unit moved to sail, there had been 47 accidents involving Beauforts. There would be another 43 before the major problem was detected. This came in January 1944 when 26-year-old RAAF Wing Commander Charles Learmonth was leading a formation of three Beauforts on an exercise off Rottnest Island in Western Australia. Wing Commander Learmonth's plane began to shake violently, so he radioed another pilot of the formation to come in behind him and see what was the matter with his Beaufort's tail. This pilot saw that the control rod to the elevator trim tab had separated and was causing the problem. Wing Commander Learmonth radioed the other pilots, explaining what was happening. These were his last words because the faulty trim tab then got stuck in the extreme upward position and sent his plane crashing into the sea. Wing Commander Learmonth and his three crew members were all killed. Beauforts were grounded after this until the deadly fault had been fixed. At least Len Fuller's chances of survival improved after that. As for the other two survivors of the 1940 mid-air miracle, they were still alive and doing their bit for the war. Ian Sinclair had come through his missions over Europe and was an instructor in England at an RAF operational training unit. As mentioned, he'd received glowing assessments, with one superior saying he had potential as a squadron leader. Jack Hewson, meanwhile, had remained in Australia during the early part of the war, working as an RAAF flying instructor. But lately, he'd been flying transport planes in New Guinea. Jack Hewson's RAAF assessment recognised his limitations and their possible causes. He scored low in the various categories and was described as slightly nervous and retiring and introspective. Jack's file noted, it is possible that one or two serious aircraft crashes this officer has been involved in may have somewhat affected his service outlook. By mid-March 1944, the war against the Nazis was going better for the Allies, but there was still much to be done. Training at East Sale was being conducted at a frantic pace. 
Bomber Command needed more and more aircrew. That would only increase when the invasion of Europe began. The local paper, the Gippsland Times, had an ad showing a young woman, it might well have been Thelma Fuller, facing away from the reader, holding a baking tray and looking down and out on an endless armada of landing craft sailing into the dark distance. The ad's banner read, Wanted, food for the European invasion. The copy read, The huge armies being prepared in Britain for the invasion of Europe increased Britain's food problems. The ad said that food-producing countries had to grow, conserve, preserve and send as much as possible to Britain for this invasion and to the Americans and Australians in the Pacific for their offensives against the Japanese. The ad promised, food will speed the finish. The finish would also come quicker if everyone continued to collect and conserve rags, metal, rubber and paper. With petrol rationing still in effect, many people got around sail on bicycles. Other people rode on big passenger buses. What there was more of than usual was daylight. Bloody daylight saving had been reintroduced to aid the war effort in 1941, and it was deeply unpopular. On Saturday the 18th of March 1944, Lynn finished work around 5.40pm. What did he and Thelma have planned? Perhaps it was a quiet night at home, listening to the wireless. Perhaps it was dinner at Papa's Cafe in Sale and the new Gene Autry movie, Down Mexico Way, which was playing at the Prince Regent Theatre. Perhaps Len and Thelma hadn't decided and they'd make up their minds when Len got home. Daylight saving didn't end until next week, so it was still light when Len set off from the base on his bicycle. He was riding from East Sale to Sale, along the Hart Road, riding west into the setting of the sun, heading home to Thelma. He never made it. Len Fuller made all the newspaper front pages one final time on Monday the 20th of March 1944. He and Thelma gazed out of page one of The Sun in Sydney. It was another all-smiles photo. Len in his Air Force uniform, Thelma in a smart pinstriped suit with a jaunty little hat. The headline above the happy couple read, Pickaback Hero Dies on Bicycle. The son told readers, He was returning to his home when a collision occurred between a bus and the bicycle he was riding. Newspaper reports across the country repeated the same scant detail. And so does his RAAF file. Quote, The above-named officer was fatally injured as a result of a collision with a motor vehicle while cycling along Hart Road, East Sale, on 18 March 1944. As far as the digitised record at Trove allows, only one newspaper, the Gippsland Times, had the inclination and or the resources to provide more insight. Describing the unfortunate accident, the paper offered, quote, It is assumed that the setting sun got in his eyes, for, as a motor bus approached him, he swerved and a head-on collision resulted. It is alleged that he swerved to the wrong side of the road. The bus, the paper said, had been empty at the time. The Gippsland Times was the only newspaper to cover the coronial inquiry. The circumstances, slightly different from that initial report, were and are haunting, given everything Len had been through to that point. It was established by the coroner that he'd been riding on the Hart Road, which was the main drag between Sale and East Sale. A witness said the sun had made it difficult to see any distance. Len had been riding on the wrong side of what seemed to be a road free of motor vehicles. Likely, he was on the wrong side because it was the smoothest available part of that stretch. The Hart Road here, though 30 feet wide, was in terribly rutted and corrugated condition, and it was hemmed in by high, hard-packed and overgrown earthen shoulders. A witness said that he, the witness, wouldn't have known the bus was coming out of the blaze of sun if the driver hadn't honked his horn. The driver, who was on the correct side and doing maybe 15-20 miles an hour, had beeped because he'd seen Len, with his head down 200 yards away, pedalling at a medium speed directly for him on the wrong side of the road. 
If the bus was going at 20 miles per hour and Len was doing 10, then they were closing on each other at the rate of 15 yards per second. 13 seconds to impact. Plenty of time. Except Len hadn't reacted to the horn. The bus driver swerved as far to his side as he could to give the bicyclist space and he again hit the horn. Now Len seemed to hear and to see. He looked up and swung his bike to his left, but it was too late. Len hit the bus's radiator and he and the bike went under the vehicle and were spat out the back. The bus came to a stop after another 15 yards. RAAF squadron leader and medical officer Jeffrey Corliss was on the scene within five minutes. But in the dry language given at the coroner's court, quote, Life was extinct, the result of a fractured skull, fractured right femur and fractured ribs. Back when Lynn Fuller had been just a year old, his father Bill had been lucky to escape with barely a scratch from an entirely avoidable accident on a country road. Len's luck had run out. Perhaps this was partly because his guard was down. The bus driver had held a license for 15 years, and tracks and skid marks in the gravel showed what had happened. The coroner found that the death of flying officer Leonard Graham Fuller had been caused through an accident, and there was nothing to show that it had been caused through any negligence on the part of the driver of the bus. Pickerback Fuller's fate surely had people talking in the pubs, at breakfast tables, on trams, in enlisted men's messes and officers' clubs. Some would have said that when your number's up, your number's up. Some would have said he'd been lucky to have those extra years, to have survived in Brocklesby and then in Palermo and other Mediterranean and Middle Eastern battles. Thelma Fuller, Nee Cockrell, She'd waited for nearly three years while Len went to the other side of the world and survived the worst battle space of the war. Then, after less than six months as man and wife, he'd been killed, not far from their house, on his bloody bike. Len Fuller was 25. He was buried in the Sale War Cemetery, grave BB-8. Nine months later, December 1944, Len's maternal grandparents celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. Len's grandpa was almost 90. His grandma was 82. They received a congratulatory message from the king, and Truth ran a photo of a nice old couple who still had all their hair. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Thelma Cockrell remarried in 1961. Thelma lived until 2012. The two other survivors of the mid-air miracle would live to see the end of World War II, yet neither would see old age. Ian Sinclair died in New South Wales in 1959. He was 46 years old. Jack Hewson passed away in Queensland in 1963. He was only 41. None of the four men of the Midair Miracle lived to see their monument finally come to fruition. In 1990, to mark the 50th anniversary, a Brocklesby committee's efforts were realised with a stone monument by the fence line of the famous paddock. The plaque bears a photograph of the plains. The text tells of what happened just beyond that point and who was involved. Back in 1940, councillors had wanted a monument in town, and this too came to pass in 2007, with an Aggie engine painted white enclosed in a steel cage placed in a park, offering visitors another description and a more accessible reminder. I hope this podcast does its bit to help honour Len Fuller and his mates from the Midair Miracle, and all the sacrifices made by those who served. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not take up a free trial as an Apple or Patreon supporter? As a supporter, you'll get every episode early and ad-free, which means you can binge entire multi-part stories without disruption well ahead of their general release. 
You'll also get bonus episodes, and the next one's going to delve into the history of White Death, that 1936 shark exploitation movie that might well be the worst Australian film ever made. Free trial links are in your show notes, and the free trial will actually let you download all the currently available early and bonus episodes. It's easy to cancel before that free trial period is up, and you won't pay anything. But if you like what you hear and you want more, remaining as a subscriber will cost you the same as a cup of coffee per month. Supporting Forgotten Australia helps me to access research materials so that I can leave no stone unturned to bring you the most accurate and detailed stories from our neglected histories. It also helps to pay for the music and sound effects that you hear in each episode. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.